Hello there, I'm Mark Davidson, a former New South Wales police sniper and detective. And I'm Lena Newen, a former New South Wales police lawyer. The lawyer, the sniper and the New South Wales police is our story, told in the hope that others who have come up against the entrenched culture of law enforcement from within might find ways to speak more openly and then we can contribute to changing the system. Our focus is on how the police responded in the aftermath of both our stories. We're passionate about justice and we're determined to add our voices to calls for change so no one else is discarded as we were. In our next episodes, we start discussing the psychological impacts, cultural and legal concerns exposed by our stories with some very special guests. But first, we continue my story and you'll hear what went on in the aftermath of the Lynn Cafe siege, how we were debriefed and what happened at the coronial inquest. Okay, so let's get started. Mark, you formed the professional view that Tory's death was preventable and that there were operational failures on the night of the siege that contributed to his death. Yes. You had deep concerns about that. So after the Lint Cafe siege was resolved, which is a very significant critical incident, normally there would be a debrief, but in this case that was delayed for four months. Yeah, like normally we'd conduct a debrief after every siege or every job and in the debrief you, you talk about what you did well, what you could have done better, how to improve so the same errors don't happen again. That's the ultimate objective of debriefs. There wasn't a debrief because it was a critical incident and so critical incidents generally don't allow you to have debriefs because you may pollute other people's recall if you talk about in, in a room what happened and what could have been done better. That may affect someone else's recall. And the recall is important because there's going to be an inquiry. In this case, there was going to be a, a high-profile coroner's inquest. And so they needed to be very careful about how they did a debrief. So, you know, Officer B didn't affect Officer C's recall of the event and, and et cetera. And eventually that debrief took place at the TAU because you and others were vocal about the absence of that debrief. And when it had occurred, you expressed your strong views that you had serious concerns about how the emergency action plan was developed and in particular how the triggers were developed. Well, they were absent. They, they weren't flawed. They were absent. That was the key standout thing for me. And, and the dispensing with the Sierra One role coordinator in the command post, which resulted in critical information not being disseminated in a timely manner. And there's still guys in that office today that are dumbfounded by that, why that didn't happen. And I can't tell you why that is. And when you voiced those serious concerns, did you feel that was being heard or received or dealt with appropriately? I saw an officer writing things down. Beyond that, I don't think really much weight was given to it because it's, it's just uh, Dave o, um carrying on again. That's the feeling I got. So 18 months later... You were called as a witness to the coronial inquiry. Before you were due to give your evidence, what happened? Well, one of the things that the, the witnesses have to go through before they give evidence is to 
go and have a conference with all the barristers and all the legal interests surrounding the and representing the New South Wales Police. And you basically give them a rundown of what you intend to say or what, what your evidence is going to be based on your input into the operation on the day. And so I did that on two occasions. I think I went down there to the, there's some chambers on Martin Place, not far from where the siege was. So this was an opportunity for the lawyers to ask you questions to help them prepare for the inquiry. And what happened at those two meetings? Well, I very quickly launched into what was wrong on the day. For example, we've already covered off on the absence of EA triggers, the absence of Sierra One roll in the command post. And I was getting very emotional about this. At one point, I actually hammer-fisted the table and raised my voice and uh, was very emotional because people died. People died, or at least Tory Johnson died as a result of these decisions or indecisions. And I was angry about it, and that scared them, I believe. That's what I felt, because they've got this person who's arguably saying things that are not necessarily going to reflect favourably on the New South Wales Police, and he's coming to give evidence as one of their witnesses. I, I believe that scared the hell out of them. And as a consequence of my presentation in these pre-evidence meetings or conferences, they tried hard not to call me as a witness. So attempts were made, quite robust attempts were made by the police lawyers for you as the chief police sniper at the siege not to give evidence as a witness before the inquiry. Yes, they, they made several representations to the coroner, Mr Barnes. There's no need to, for us to hear from Sergeant Davidson. Another officer can give that same similar type of evidence. But unfortunately for them is I saw and did things that no one else did and so they had to call me and, and they didn't like that. So you were called as a witness. How long were you before the inquiry giving evidence? I was just there for one day, incredibly. The inquiry went on for months and months and months about him getting bail or not getting bail or over, over previous charges and why Man Modus was able to walk the earth on the 15th of December 2014 and why, why he wasn't in custody. So these probing parts of the inquiry went on for an exorbitant amount of time and when it got down to the nitty-gritty of what happened on the day, people like myself were restricted to being questioned for one day. I could have been in there for a week easily. That was what I felt. The parameters for me being questioned were so tight and that was quite clear from the moment I got in there. All the barristers that were representing all the parties and the families involved had very narrow scope to question me about certain things. Certainly the EA trigger shortfall would never raise its head because I never had the opportunity to talk about it. So very forceful arguments were made to exclude you from sharing your observations and experience of the Link Cafe siege. And to sum up, you felt silence. You had things to say that, in your professional opinion, were highly important to the review but weren't considered relevant. Well, maybe they were considered too relevant. I'm a great believer in certain circumstances. If you start asking ugly questions, then you, you stand a great chance of getting ugly answers. And that's what I felt they feared from me. 
I just want to ask you something about what the coroner wrote. The coroner's report was delivered in May 2017 and it was 495 pages in length. I just want to read part of it to you, Mark, that he wrote, I cannot stress too heavily that the deaths and inquiries that occurred as a result of the siege were not the fault of police. And later he says, on analysing the police response, Against what standard does one judge a man demanded to stare down death to save strangers? Who will dare say that they could have done better? Just wondering if you have any thoughts on those remarks. I get the impression he's talking more directly about the actions of the police that performed the emergency action and ran in, ran in to resolve the situation by force. But he's certainly not addressing the shortfalls in the decisions that were made up to the point that the emergency action was affected. So there was serious mishaps that occurred that happened before the emergency action was affected. And that wasn't reflected in that comment made by the coroner, I don't feel. And from your experience, because your evidence was so narrowly restricted, there was so much critical information that you had first-hand direct experience of that clearly wasn't allowed to be conveyed and therefore not taken into account. You weren't able to take the action that you wanted to. Why? What I think you're getting at there is there was a point where Tory was put onto his knees, as I said earlier, and his hands were put on his head. So one of the roles that snipers need to fulfil, apart from being able to shoot, is to communicate over a radio any significant changes inside the premises. When Tory Johnson was put to his knees, my understanding was that that was their evidence in, their, in the coroner's inquest that, that Mark Davidson didn't make a radio communication about Tory Johnson being put to his knees. I was challenged in regards to this point in my evidence at the inquest that these officers have said you didn't make a radio communication and it wasn't that Mark Davidson might have made a radio communication about Tory Johnson being put on his knees and we didn't hear it. Their version, was, as I understand it, was that it, that radio communication never happened and it, it started to get to the point in my evidence that I was actually starting to doubt myself. I'm thinking, are these officers gaslighting me to the point that they're making me question my own reality? And after my evidence finished and I, and I left the inquest, I went and, and found some officers that were working on that day that were in the street waiting to commit the emergency action and I sort of, I canvassed them. Did they remember me talking about Tory Johnson being put on his knees on the radio? on that day and and they did I found two officers that did so it was obviously too little too late by that stage but it reinforced the fact that I did make that radio communication but certain officers I don't know what the attempt was to do but it was certainly brought my credibility into question about what I did on that day. You feel that you had the opportunity to shoot Monas but there were two critical factors that prevented you from being able to take that action the first was that there was critical information from the hostage who had escaped that wasn't conveyed to you and there was key communication that you had made in the moments leading up to Tori's death 
over which there's a factual dispute about whether you made that communication. Yes, that's right. And so it sounds like your very firm and clear memory of events just didn't fit with the overall narrative that police were not at fault at all for the deaths of Katrina Dawson or Tori Johnson. Certainly, I got the impression that certain police and certain parties didn't want to hear what I had to say. The inquest was finalised. You were struggling at this point. You felt that you had been silenced and there were key concerns of operational failures that you had raised. If, if things are dealt with appropriately and rigorously and measures are taken so the same mistakes can't be made again, then that's reassuring. We don't need to reinvent the wheel in terms of new fantastic counterterrorism legislation and what we had was enough. We just need to stick to the game plan. We needed to play how we trained. If you don't play how you train, then everyone gets confused. And that's sort of like what happened on that day. Major changes were made to how we run things in terms of siege doctrine and siege management, and there was no reason for it. It didn't need to happen like that. You can run all the inquests you want and come up with all the recommendations you want that are likely to come out of an inquest like that. They didn't have the aptitude, I feel, to hear the truth in terms of the entire context of what happened and all its ugliness and all its glory. The truth of what happened is was so ugly that attempts were made to cover up the truth and cover up accountability. And there was no resolution from the inquest. There was nothing in my mind as it stands right at this point. If the same thing was to happen today, I wouldn't be 100% sure that the same errors weren't going to be made. Nothing. So from that perspective... The system and the procedure of having a coronal inquiry of unveiling that truth failed. It failed, yeah, for sure. How did that affect your trauma and PTSD? Well, I certainly believe it was a factor in me getting worse. Well, that's part of the reason why I'm here with you today is because the the important people in this equation, which is not just what happened to you, but what happened to Tory's family and Katrina Dawson's families and the loss of their loved ones, the subsequent police and emergency service personnel that have had their mental health affected, those people didn't get the closure and the answers that they deserved. So that's tough to... um, That flashback of him dying, that flashback of him dying, repeating over and over in my head, for days after days, after months after months. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that uh, PTSD and and this type of mental uh, trauma doesn't go away very easily. This was 2016, I went off work. And I naively thought when I went off sick that I'd be off sick for a couple of months and I'd be back at work. And I said to my commander, I go, I need to, I'm going off sick, I'm, I'm I'm not... no, I had a few panic attacks leading up to this and and panic attacks are not rational, but they're very real. Your rational brain is saying 
everything's fine. There's nothing to be afraid of. You're just driving in a car in heavy traffic. There's another part of your brain telling you you're in mortal danger all the time and that you need to get out of the situation that you're in. And you've got these two competing factions in your brain and it's very real. And that's when I knew, I go, this, I'm not going to last if I keep, I can't go back to work in this state of mind and be asked to do the job I've done for 10 years before or, or my whole career before this and not get help. So the impact, well, I mean, I've gotten myself sorted out to a certain degree, but it's taken a long time. I naively thought when I went off sick that uh, I'd be off sick for a couple of months and I'd be back at work. But that was how wrong I was. And it's been years, you know, what we're in 2022 now, and I'm still not 100%. But I've got tools to fix it and tools to get me through most days. But I thought I could do it by myself, and I'm sure there's other police and other people in various spaces that don't want to ask for help because they don't want to be seen as weak. So for me, the, the coronial inquiry and the events leading up to it and the errors that happened leading up to it and how it was managed, it gave me no closure. And that was definitely a factor in making my mental health worse and perpetuating the flashbacks and, and there'd be other police and emergency service personnel in a similar but not just with this particular incident, but with other incidents like this, serious things that have happened in people's lives. And they need to be dealt with properly. And they need to be led to asking for help in a safe, supported environment. But it wasn't safe and supportive, wasn't Mark? In fact, you had heard and seen things in the office that were quite petty, if you look at it on the surface, but they say something about police culture. Yeah, I mean, the things that come to mind, uh, at a point I was still operational, still at work, but at a point I was declining rapidly. One of the blokes that I wasn't very friendly with walked in and and said to another bloke, oh, here he is, do you want to give him a fucking hug? Inferring that, you know, I might be struggling and and did did another officer want to support me in some way? So it was cast down in in a very condescending sort of way. And then on another occasion... I talked about the SWAT training earlier on and the room combat courses that we do. My name was on a plaque for a room combat course that I was involved in in 2006 and the the brass nameplate where my name was attached was unscrewed and removed from the plaque and then there was another occasion where there was an honour board for so every police officer that's worked at the TAU, even for a day, you get your name up on an honour board as you walk in the office, your name's there in like gold little gold lettering like it's a sticker and the stickers after I'd left the stickers it was scratched off on my name like I never existed there so there's this the mindset that you're sort of dealing with in some parts of police culture I'm not saying it's across the board but it is there and it's real we you know unlike myself I'm suing because I've been victimized and discriminated against and made redundant as a result of speaking up about my treatment But despite you feeling that you were treated reasonably well and medically discharged with some level of dignity? I'd have to say yes. There was one or two individuals that kept regular contact with me as I was going through the medical discharge process and and kept following me up. They'd physically come and meet with me and have coffee and lunches and that sort of stuff, and that, that was good. 
on either hand, I was I was very you know we're all just numbers, I believe, and organisations like that, and you very quickly dispensed with and forgotten about it by many of the people there. The insurer that that I'm with have been nothing but supportive through my process of dismissal and medical discharge, or medical discharge rather, not dismissal, but I, I lost my job and, and the, the results the same. Uh, but the doctors that I've been referred to and the psychologists, psychiatrists and a mental health care plan has been very good. It's got me back on track to living a semi-normal life. Why did you decide to do this podcast with me when I proposed the idea to you? If doing something like this with you can facilitate positive change occurring in this organisation, then that, that's a good thing and that's something that I wanted to be part of. And like, no one's perfect and when you make an error, you really just got to own it and then try and make sure it doesn't happen again. And I'm not satisfied that that has happened on this occasion. Being able to acknowledge one's own mistakes is part of leadership, isn't it? That's right, yeah. And no one's infallible, and certainly no one I know anyway. People make errors and people make bad decisions. What happened on that day wasn't an easy situation. It was a very high-stakes, high-stress environment, and errors get made. But what you want to happen is those bad calls not to keep reoccurring. And they will keep reoccurring unless you own the original mistakes and rectify them and put measures in place so they don't keep reoccurring. And unless that happens, then we're up for a repeat cycle at some point. Another reason is that I sincerely believe there's people out there that have suffered trauma or suffering trauma continually at work that are maybe resistant to seeking help so I wanted them to, if they can draw, listen to this and draw some strength from listening to you and I, uh, our stories, and, and then seek help and, and sort themselves out and ch- change their lives for the better, then I think that's another worthy cause to get involved in doing something like this. And the other reason is that I still feel a closeness or a uh, responsibility to Katrina Dawson's family and Tori Johnson's family. What I want to happen is the information and the facts that weren't revealed as a result of the inquest, I want that to be revealed publicly for the benefit of the families involved that I just mentioned. You know, If this process can do that, then I'm, I want to be part of it. So, Mark, you interviewed me through two very tough episodes, having me describe in detail emotionally my story and... I truly want to express my deep appreciation for you being in conversation with me and speaking so deeply from the heart and with such integrity about your experience. You're welcome. In our next episode, we invite a special guest, clinical psychologist Lynn Worsley, to talk about the complex trauma that comes to bear after whistleblowing in law enforcement. A good place to head if you need advice in the area we've discussed is Whistleblowers Australia. Or if you've experienced sexual assault or any kind of family or domestic violence, call the National Counselling Line on 1800 737 732. That's 1800 RESPECT. The show today was devised by us Lena Nguyen and Mark Davidson. 
Executive producer and writer is Gretchen Miller and sound engineering from Judy Rapley. Thanks for listening. See you next time.